Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to those listening. I am a son who can praise God for a mother who cares and loves unconditionally. I'm very thankful to still have her in my life. It is a gift of God's grace to enjoy such. And I know that the world cannot say that, not in majority. And that's what makes Mother's Day a day of complexities. There is joy and grieving, celebration and loneliness, rejoicing and regret, hurt and hope. And it's a day of much contemplation. This morning's scripture reading covers the historical setting of Moses' mother, one of four women we will consider today. And our reading is found in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Then we'll move ahead to verse 15. We'll read through 22. And then Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he, the king, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Exodus chapter two, verse one. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. We will now sing the solid rock. Stanza two says this. When darkness seems to hide his face, and that would have been true for Moses' family. I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My anchor holds within the veil on Christ, the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. If you have your scriptures, open them to Exodus chapter 2. And this morning we're going to talk about how women who fear the Lord can respond in difficult circumstances. This Mother's Day, we find ourselves in a different situation. And mothers, not least of all, have been affected. Uh, where many people's schedules have gotten slower, moms' schedules seem to have gotten a lot busier. Schedules have been upended, securities have been shaken, traditional schools have canceled, a multitude of homeschools who had never even dreamed about opening have opened unexpectedly. Uh, someone 
shared with me a meme this week that shows a dark SUV and on the back tinted windows in white paint, it says this, you lied, my kids are not a joy to have in class. So mom's schedules have been upended, they've become teachers in a different way that they never anticipated, and much of life has changed. And the question is, how does a woman who fears the Lord, who, who trusts in the Lord, who believes in the Lord, or maybe even who doubts the Lord, how does a woman who fears the Lord respond in difficult circumstances? And I want to highlight four responses. Each will be attached to a biblical personality. Number one, they can trust in God's protective care. Number two, they can interpret God's providences graciously. Number three, they can rest in God's grace completely. And number four, they can worship God's Son genuinely. Four women, four universal lessons, four lives that really do, in their own unique way, point us to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. First of all, a woman who fears the Lord can trust in God's protective care. It's interesting that in the Exodus narrative, Moses' mother is never mentioned, not by name. What we do is we find her name mentioned in two different genealogies, one in Numbers and one in Exodus 6. Let me read the account in Numbers, and we are introduced to her by name. Numbers chapter 26, verse 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed. That's her. The daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. That means Jochebed only ever knew life in Egypt. She was born in Egypt and she gave birth to children in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. Jochebed is Moses' mother, born during the captivity in Egypt, and is a woman who saw, whether she was expecting it or not, the text never tells us, she saw God's protective hand in her child's life. The text says nothing about her faith, it says nothing about her trust. It says nothing about her God-centeredness. But she is remembered for how wisely she acted as a mother during very dangerous times. She was pregnant with Moses during a time when an evil edict was given by Pharaoh, when the midwives would not listen. They wouldn't obey the government. It says in Exodus 1.22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people... Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That is a devastating decree. Not only the death of sons, but perhaps just as much the possible warped motives behind why he would let daughters live. So during this time period, for a woman to become pregnant with either a son or a daughter, it was a fearful and treacherous time. This is a story of a mother who witnessed God's protective care for her child. Yes, ultimately, it is leading us to understand God's preservation and preparation of Moses. But you see a mom's actions when her child had a death sentence on his head even before he took his first breath. As the story unfolds, there are two other women that are mentioned by name who gain the attention of Pharaoh, but more importantly, unexpectedly, they gain the attention and favor of God. I want to read that, those verses again out of Exodus 1, uh, a few phrases between verses 15 and 21. 
Because the midwives feared God, Shifra and Puah, they refused to obey the king's orders okay, based upon a fear of who God is. They allowed the boys to live too, it says. Listen to the, listen to the response. So God was good to the midwives. See, God sees and he blesses even in such a mundane, seemingly mundane activity as being a midwife to enslaved people. God sees and he blesses. And the text says, and because the midwives feared God, he, God, gave them families of their own. Now back to the main narrative. Look at it. Look at Exodus chapter two, verse two. The woman, this is Jochebed, not mentioned by name, but the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And those must have been exceedingly fearful and exceedingly anxious months for this mother. Look at verse 3, chapter 2. But when she, Jochebed, could no longer hide him, that, that suggests danger and pressure and fear, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. So this really pushes against Hollywood's narrative or Disney's narrative where you see this baby in a basket being washed down the Nile River and crocodiles are trying to attack it. What you see here is the care of a mother, not just haphazardly casting the child away, giving into fatalism, but purposely, deliberately placing it in the reeds, hoping that something else will happen. It says this, the baby sister then stood at a distance, whether put as a watchman by the mom or not. There's this sister watching her baby brother. The baby sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. And of course, as we read this, the sister is watching and waiting to see what would happen. And we, the readers, are watching and waiting to see what God will do. The setting is stunning. A mighty city located in North Africa it is, it is the world superpower of its day, a seeming tropical paradise at the time, situated right along the Nile River, but it is no resort for the Hebrews because they are enslaved and under the dark enslavement of an oppressive regime. And there is a baby in a papyrus basket on the bank of the river. Look at verse 5, Exodus chapter 2. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river. And her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Just, just pause right there and look at that gracious, protective, providential detail where the sister immediately moves in, takes advantage of a situation that God is opening up, and asks the princess if she can go find someone to take care of the baby. Of course, the sister has in mind her own mother. Keep reading. She asked, yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Look at verse 9. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Look at what just happened. Jochebed was allowed to keep her own son, nurse him. Now she's going to get paid for it. And she is under the protection of Pharaoh himself. 
A woman who looks to God, a woman who cares, can trust in the protective care of God. Jochebed is the first person in Scripture to have the prefix Yah, which comes from Yahweh, attached to her name. So literally her name is Jochebed, and it means Yahweh is her glory. That's what she saw as a mom, God's protective care, God's glory in her life. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. But note that Jochebed had to give up her son twice now, trusting in the protective care of God. I'm not sure what you are facing as a woman this morning, whether single or married or divorced or with or without children. But I do know this, based upon this text, that God is actively involved in your story. He's actively involved in your life, and He is worthy to be trusted. Look to Him. Believe in Him. Call out to Him. The life of Moses is incredible. And there is actually hope in the fact that when he grew up, all of his decisions were not wise. And in this too, mothers can take hope. Moses tried to do ministry in his own strength, and he failed. He killed an Egyptian. He ran away for a long period of time. He actually spent four years in voluntary exile in Midian after killing the Egyptian. And he became angry in ministry, which prohibited from entering him from entering the promised land. Our children will struggle, and they will fail. And for long periods of time, it seems like they are in a wilderness much like Moses was. But listen to what Hebrews says about Moses. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Though he lived before Jesus, what he did is he grew and he matured. He grew in grace and matured in his understanding of a promised Deliverer, and he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses lived for another place and another time. A woman who fears the Lord, who believes the Lord, can trust in God's protective care. Secondly, a woman who fears the Lord can also interpret God's providences rightly. Let's consider a second lady in the Old Testament, and her name is Hadassah. A woman who fears the Lord can interpret God's providences, that's a big word, rightly. Theologian Louis Burkhoff defines providence as this. That continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures. It is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. Much like the psalmist would say that God is a very present help. He's involved. He's governing these things to a specific end. Hadassah is the name that was given to Esther. Ruth and Esther are the only books out of 66 Old and New Testament books to be named after women. Ruth and Esther, though, are not the same. They move in different directions. In Ruth, a Moabite woman, outsider, marries a Judean man, insider, and remains in Judah. 
which is somewhat respectable to Jewish people. In Esther, however, a Judean woman marries a Persian man, an outsider, and remains in Persia, somewhat scandalous to the Jewish people. Esther is the orphaned daughter of Abihail. Both of Esther's parents died when she was young. Here is a, here's a young lady who lost her mother at a young age. And what you will see unfold in the story, in the narrative of Esther, is this. A woman who refuses to let the hurts and the scars and the loss and the pain make her bitter. She doesn't allow those events as a young girl to sour her. And that allows her to be in the position for God to use her in amazing ways. One of God's gracious providences is that while in Persia, her older cousin Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. This is said twice in Esther chapter 2. Let me read one of those references in verse 7. This man, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. That is a gracious providence of God. Esther is in a strange land with strange people and without her parents. This book is composed of 167 verses, yet one of the unique features of the book of Esther is the complete absence of any reference to God. In that one detail, you could call the book of Esther godless, and then that's reinforced by sort of the sordid glimpses of partying and festivities inside the Persian kingdom. You have this somewhat godless book that out of all the books in the Bible uses no theistic language, no language referring to God. I want to pause right here and point this out. Because this is one of the, the, the beautiful structures of Esther. Sometimes life feels just like the book of Esther. It feels like God is missing it feels like he's absent. It feels like he's distant. And sometimes we feel that in our own life. That there's no mention of God. There's no visible activity of God. But this is what we need to remember. God's presence is real even though his name may be missing. Or we, we might say it this way. Just because God is unnamed does not mean that God is uninvolved in our life. Esther had been chosen to be the next wife of a pagan Persian king. A king who had a horrible track record with his previous wife. A real drama is then play, is played out between Mordecai, which is Esther's older cousin, and Haman, who is second in command to the king. And there's this, this nationalism that takes place and this rivalry and this pride so that Haman devises a plan not just to kill Mordecai, on a very tall gallows, he's going to be hung, but to actually extinguish the Jewish people that are living in Persia. Esther 3.13 says this, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction, listen to this, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. Here, here comes the beautiful centerpiece to this entire story, and it is how God orchestrated events and timing for an orphan girl to enter the kingdom. 
But the path for her to get there was painful for her, I'm sure, frightening for her. These are the providences of God. But getting her into the exact right position to intervene for the Jewish people. The queen to Xerxes, but the servant of the living God who remains unmentioned. And Esther 4.14, probably the verse that stands out most to us, is this truth. That Esther Hadassah had come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's what God has been doing all along. Through the pain, through the loss, He has been getting her to that particular kingdom for the perfect time. What she does is amazing. She chooses selflessness and courage. She goes to her husband, the king, unsummoned, which you would do on the threat of death. A man, by the way, who has a history of turning against his wife. And in Esther 4.16, listen to her resolve. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Chapter 8, verse 5 says, Esther rose and stood before the king. This is, and, and God displayed his incredible wisdom and his power and his timing, his providential care over his creatures, over creation, over history. And, and this, is, this is important to remember. We get to read sort of these peaks of Esther's life, these mountain peaks. But what is often hidden from us that you can only fill in are the long valleys where her country was invaded, another long valley where her people were mistreated and deported, where her parents died, where she was taken fearfully as the wife of Xerxes. Those are those dark valleys that God is at work in, silently, seemingly absent of those details, but in complete control. Notice what happens. Poetic justice. Haman is hung on his own gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. The Jewish people not only survive, but succeed. Esther is granted what she wants. And Esther chapters 9 through 10 record a feast called Purim. And to this day, the Jews still celebrate that feast in remembrance of God's salvation orchestrated underneath Esther. A woman who fears the Lord can trust in God's protective care, but she can also interpret God's providences, even when they're painful. She can interpret them rightly. Third, a woman who fears the Lord can rest in God's grace completely. Turning your scriptures to Joshua chapter 2. We are first introduced to this woman in Joshua chapter 2 verse 1. And it not only gives us her name, it gives us her profession. Chapter 2 verse 1, it says, And Joshua, I'll read ahead, sent two men secretly as spies. Most of us are familiar with this story. And he said to them, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Rahab is a mother's daughter too. And this daughter, Rahab, has chosen a difficult path, but there's incredible hope. Go forward to chapter 6 in Joshua and look at verse 16. It says this, and the city... And all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only, look what it says, Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Why? Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Not only that, not only was she spared, but then God brought Rahab into the messianic line, that line, that seed line of Jesus Christ by allowing her to marry Solomon. 
the mother of the godly Boaz. That means Rahab was King David's great-grandmother. You can find that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And the question is, why did this prostitute, a resident of the godless walled city Jericho, take such a risk on two Hebrew men, two Israelite soldiers? And I want to answer that question with her own words. Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. If you go back to chapter 2, look at verse 9. She said to the men, the two spies, I know, I believe that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Look at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. I want you to see this. Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. For the Lord your God, listen to this confession. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's what belief looks like. That's what faith, that's what trust, that's what conversion looks like. Rahab the prostitute saying, your God is the God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. Rahab does not appear to have any religious background or heritage. She did not have a believing husband. She did not have parents who feared the Lord. There are foreign spies on her roof, and she put them there. They are not Jerichoites, but spies from the Israelite military. Why? Because of God's grace. Rahab's faith was evidenced by her choices. She believed in the Lord. And, and that grace is highlighted in two areas specifically. Or we would say God's blessing to her is highlighted in two areas. Number one, she married Salmon. And then number two, Rahab bore Salmon a son named Boaz, who bore a son named Obed, who bore a son named Jesse, who bore a son named David. That's Ruth chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. Rahab heard about God and believed. And I, and I want you to hear, because not every lady makes it into Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. But Rahab does. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, she believed in their God and hid them. So I would say this to our women or any lady listening. God's Grace is sufficient to forgive past sins and failures and present sins and failures and future sins and failures. But there's also an element here where we are encouraged and invited to trust in God in his intervention in the desperate circumstances our children may be in. Remember, Rahab was someone's daughter, too. God intervened and showed her his amazing grace. So a woman who fears the Lord, a woman who believes the Lord, or a woman who looks to the Lord can trust in God's protective care, can interpret God's providences rightly, and can rest in God's grace completely. And finally this morning, she can worship God's Son genuinely. Turn to Luke chapter 7. There are many mothers in Denver, in Centennial, in Arapahoe, throughout the United States, throughout the world, very much like the one we're about to read about. And there is great hope in Jesus Christ for each of them. Luke chapter 7, verse 37, we're going to sort of 
sort of parachute right down into the middle of the story. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 37. And there was a woman. She's never named. It's interesting in this narrative that the Pharisee, who does not really know Jesus, is named. She's not. And it's almost like her anonymity allows us to insert whoever we'd like into this story. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And we know that all people have sinned, but she had carved out a reputation for it. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. This woman was known by all in the city as a sinner. She came in, and her difficulty is not that her child was going to be thrown into the Nile or not any of the other difficulties the other women faced. Her difficulty was walking in to worship Jesus with the fear of being accused by a trained religious elite who had authority in that city. She comes in to show her love to Jesus, probably overwhelmed by her gratitude for his grace, and she begins to cry and wash his feet with her tears and to wipe them with her hair and to anoint him. Simon, the Pharisee, who has really no clue what true worship looks like, even though he's been a religious leader for years, he has the training, the title, the position, the responsibility, the clothes, but he is a stranger to the true worship of Yahweh. It says this in verse 39 of Luke 7, now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw the woman worshiping that way, he said to himself, notice he doesn't say this out loud, but he says this to himself. If this man were a prophet, right, he's judging, he's evaluating, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Just based upon that interaction, Simon came to three conclusions. If Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman, literally what kind of woman this was, her character, her deeds. And if he knew, if Jesus knew what kind of woman and how sinful she was, he would never let her touch him for she is unclean. And because Jesus allows her to continue, Simon concludes, remember, to himself, in his own thinking, that Jesus must not be a prophet. And I love how Jesus responds in verse 40. And Jesus answering, even though Simon only had these thoughts in his own head, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Of course, Jesus, as he often did, goes into an illustration. A certain money lender, lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's 20 months wages, nearly two years of wages. And another 50, that's two months wages. Both, both were in debt, one in much greater debt. Verse 42 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. That's the first time during the entire meal that the Pharisee judged rightly. And when he judges rightly, finally, he condemns himself. His response now, Jesus' response is beautiful because what it does is it shows to us that he did know the woman and her reputation and her history. Look at verse 47. 
Therefore, I tell you, he's still talking to Simon the Pharisee. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. See, he did know her are forgiven for she loved much. The love was the evidence of forgiveness, not what caused the forgiveness. But he was forgiven little. He's looking at Simon loves little. And now he turns to the woman. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, and those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, this is beautiful. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She is unashamedly passionate about worshiping her Redeemer. She's not worshiping the liturgy or the style of worship or the attention of worshiping. She is worshiping the object of her faith, who is Jesus Christ. She was conscious of the magnitude of her sin, but now she is overwhelmed by the magnitude of forgiveness. And for this reason too, you can push against the fear of religious criticism and worship Jesus because He is the one who has authority, knowing our full history, knowing every single sin, knowing every sin that we will commit. He can say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Do you find yourself this morning in a difficult situation, perhaps fearing for your child like Jochebed? Well, then you can trust in God for His protective care. Perhaps you're not sure what God is doing in your life. Why He's allowed the hurt or the pain or the loss. Perhaps like Esther, your life has been marked by grief. But you can this morning interpret God's providence over the details of your life graciously when you know that His character is good and kind. Perhaps your life is not what it ought to be. Perhaps you've realized this morning, like Rahab did a long time ago, that God's grace extends even to Gentile prostitutes who, who, seem to have, who seem to be out of reach of God's grace, caught up in a cycle of poor and sinful decisions. If that is you, you can turn to Jesus and rest in His grace completely, for by grace we have been saved through faith, not by ourselves, not, not by works that we have done. Or perhaps like the final lady, the sinful woman, you never quite fit into organized religion. You had or have a reputation for sinning, but Jesus can turn to you by simple childlike faith placed in Him, and He can turn to you and say, your sins are forgiven. Even though Pharisees continue to condemn you can worship God's Son genuinely this morning. And I do hope that you know Jesus as your Savior. If you continue to have questions, if you're wondering, if this sounds too good to be true, which if it sounds too good to be true, it's called the Gospel. That's called good news for sinful souls. I want to encourage you to read the Gospel according to John. Just start in chapter 1 and go all the way to the last chapter and ask God this. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart as you read His Word and so that He can overwhelm you by His grace shown to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our music team to come forward. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our hymn of the month and that is Come to the Altar. And if you're a woman this morning, not just a mom, but if you're a woman this morning or a person, any individual, 
and you are overwhelmed by guilt or shame or failure, I want you to listen to this song because the song puts forward in vivid imagery a Father, God the Heavenly Father, whose arms are wide open. He's not pushing you away, but in His Son invites you close. And they will sing, come to the altar. Let's pray.